You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Grace, and thanks for tuning in. With me this week, I have Andy. Woo! We have our guest, Jesse. Hi! And Claire. Hello. Now, before we get into our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. As per usual, our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. We love you guys! We've revamped our Patreon tiers for the new year, bringing in some new rewards like exclusive Women at Warp merch. So if you've ever thought about checking our Patreon, now is the perfect time. We really appreciate the support, and you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Women at Warp. Also, you can check out our Tee Public store for t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, masks, and more at tpublic.com slash stores slash Women at Warp. We're regularly curating new designs, and we've got, we're finding new stuff all the time. So check it out, because there's always something new. All of these links also are available on our website at womenatwarp.com, which is a pretty self-explanatory website title, really. <laughs> we weren't trying to fool people. Womenatwarp.com? I'm so, it's very confusing. Very confusing. <laughs> we got into a fight with womenatwarp.gov. That was a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into our topic, let's introduce our guests a little more. Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself to our guests who maybe don't know what you do? No, no, I don't want to introduce myself at all. I'll just... I'll just <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> no, uh, many people may know me as uh, Jesse Gender over on YouTube. I do videos on Star Trek and then pop culture and science fiction in general, but let's face it, mostly Star Trek and how it intersects with social issues, political issues, and LGBTQ issues. And uh, lately I've been talking about uh, autism as well, considering I am on the autism spectrum myself. So I've been doing a few videos on that, both within Star Trek and other places. So yeah, that's that's the main sort of thing that I do. Awesome. And Claire, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, I don't have a YouTube channel, I'm sorry to say. <gasps> for shame, for shame. I know. <laughs> so I started watching Star Trek on whatever whatever day it was in 1987 that Encounter at Farpoint aired. I was oh two and gosh. a half and I actually remember watching it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Grew up in a <laughs> very much a Star Trek and science fiction and just generally nerd things friendly family. So yeah, I have watched since TNG, I've watched all Star Trek as it aired forever, even when I didn't think it was very good. (laughs) (laughs) How cool to be there for the full experience, though. Uh, Yeah, as as close as I could. I think I was like 12 when I first watched the original series. Hey, it's it's better than my entry. My entry point to Star Trek was the Star Trek Nemesis audiobook. So really, I could only go. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> my dad played that for me on a car ride home and I got enraptured by it. And now, and he was like, if you like this, well. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you've got to be the only person who was not only like drawn to who, who was drawn into Star Trek by Nemesis. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> it, it is a place to start. I won't say it's a good one. <laughs> well, we're not we're, we're we won't say good or bad. All all entries into the fandom are valid, but. That is yes. one very, very niche means, I will say, <laughs> definitely. Yes, yes. So speaking of niches, for our topic today, we wanted to talk about autistic-coded characters in Star Trek, or characters that just read to us as autistic. Now, when we're talking about autism, we are talking about a very broad blanket statement of the spectrum. 
autism spectrum disorder or ASD is a developmental condition. We call it being non-neurotypical. At least that's the phraseology I go for there. It can show up in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. It's important to note that a lot of it, a lot of the time it is more highly diagnosed in males than females. So, which is makes sense looking at our list that, that we've got a lot more male characters to talk about than female characters. Wonder why that is. Anywho, there are a bunch of different traits associated with this. And if you've been watching the news lately, entertainment news specifically, there are a lot of ideas that not autistic people seem to have about how it works to be autistic. Oh, yes. So this felt like an especially good time to dive into that. So what are some things we typically think of when we're thinking about how people expect an autistic character to behave? Well, I think, especially if we're looking at the time period in which a lot of Star Trek was produced, it's very much the kind of the the Rain Man archetype. Yep. Unfortunately, the the entertainment news you're talking about that was produced, you know, a month ago, also mm. it's that archetype. Nothing has changed. Yeah, it's almost as if the, you know, the neurotypicals have learned <laughs> nothing in 30 years. <laughs> yeah. So what we have here, this idea that we have from Rain Man is this idea of like the quote unquote idiot savant, someone who doesn't know how to function in the way that a lot of people think of as normal, but has some kind of secret superhuman brain ability, which we see a lot with autistic coded t- characters in media. Yeah, with uh, Shel- Sheldon from Big Bang Theory being mm-hmm. like a relatively recent example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Or them having the BBC Sherlock and them kind of offhanded make uh, Asperger's jokes about it. Oh, yes. And then we got all kinds of fun comments from the actors about how it's cruel to give autistic people a role model like that. Charming. Whee! But yeah, we have these kind of general ideas of what autism entails from the pop culture that is widely distributed of autistic people or people on the spectrum as being kind of cold, kind of socially oblivious and callous and having really intense hyperfixations on, on specific topics, being very formal in speaking. And again... Like we said, both with the diagnoses and with the list of characters we've got, it's a lot more men than women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is fun because then you get to ask yourself, is this a byproduct of this being thought of as a male condition or a byproduct of just they're not putting a lot of work into writing complicated women characters? Probably a little bit of A, a little bit of B. And also like yeah. just reflecting also in like the diagnoses as well is sort of like not recognizing any sort of women's issues in general. <laughs> like, oh, women have like health issues and, and have their own ways of processing the world in unique ways. That's that's so weird. And yeah, and the socializing, the, the way that children who present as female are socialized very differently than children who are presenting as male. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of like, as long as you're academically doing okay, or you're just sort of not acting out in ways that are seen as destructive or overly kind of disruptive, you're fine. Like you're just quiet or you're just weird or you're just sort of, you know, like you can be a horse girl and it's fine. If you're a trained boy, then you probably should see someone about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably no coincidence. Like I, for your listeners may not know I'm trans and I was diagnosed on the spectrum when I was really, really young. And one of the things that the person who diagnosed me said was like, 
well, you're probably, uh, you know, doing really well in school because you're, you're on the spectrum, which is like basically something that he like talked to my parents about. He literally said like, oh, your, your autism will be an insurance policy for going to college because you know, you'll do well. Oh, that's so fun when your mental condition is, you know, treated as a commodity and it's only, you know, worth having if it's helpful in some way. Yep, it was fun. Goody, goody gumdrops. But obviously complimenting me for being smart because I was seen as a boy too when I was younger as well. So there's there's that aspect of it. Yeah. I think that Jesse made a good point about just doctors and women in general as well in that doctors just don't listen to women mm-hmm. in the same way that they listen to men when it comes to them trying to describe anything about what's actually happening to them. I, f- I find that do- doctors tend to be less receptive to that. Yeah, I, I do wonder. I mean, there's no way to know for sure. But I mean, I do wonder if like, if I had been, you know, understood to be a woman as I as I was at a young age, instead of being seen as a boy, whether my diagnoses would have been portrayed in such a positive way, or even if I would have been diagnosed at all. Well, I, I'll say I'm not formally diagnosed. I'm like halfway diagnosed in that I got to the point that a professional was like, yeah, you probably definitely would like this sounds right and you should probably pursue that. And I just sort of stopped there because for a variety of reasons. But uh, that wasn't until like probably seven or eight years ago at this point. I, I, I grew up as the sort of, yeah, academically successful, quirky, you know, whatever kind of pleasant stereotypes you want to apply to it, the, the weird girl, whatever. And it was fine, but there was so much more to it than that. And I think if a variety of circumstances had been different, I, I don't know if maybe I would have gone in for, for diagnosis earlier and actually gotten a diagnosis as a younger person. I don't know. But for, for me very much, like I grew up in a family where it was totally cool for me to be weird or have weird interests. My parents didn't care. They were supportive. They were like, whatever. You do you, as long as you seem to be, you know, doing okay. But I think for people who grow up in different types of households where they get pressured to to perform differently than 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 is is natural for them, then yeah, I um, also didn't get a diagnosis until later in life, not till my early twenties. Even though I had very clear symptoms and behavioral patterns as a kid, most of the time when it was brought up to my parents as being a possibility. It was just kind of brushed off with, oh, she's just shy. She's just a a nervous kid. And so there was a lot of having to be like, well, I guess any behavioral problems I'm having or communication issues are my fault. So I got to work extra hard to make up for them. Yeah. And that was kind of part of the narrative I got growing up. So if I'm, sorry, I'm word tumbling again. Word tumbling. Oh my gosh, that might be one of my favorite descriptions ever. Word tumbling. I am going to use that. <laughs> I have the problem where my mouth works faster than my brain sometimes. And then I have to go, wait, did that actually make sense? Which is funny because that actually can relate into my communication issues I have. <laughs> it's topical. No, it's it's <laughs> it's it's interesting because I think, I, I mean, I do the same exact thing. And it's interesting that uh, all of us have kind of like to a degree of displayed that even the past few minutes of like the self-consciousness of our own words about yeah. being like, oh, we'll talk, talk, talk. And then we're like, wait, am I saying the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? And you like get in your head about it because you're trying to analyze your own sort of social interactions with other people. And and so because you're getting so self-conscious in your head, you, it starts to tumble out in the ways you interact with other people being like, oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me apologize for what I'm saying. So like, it, it's kind of exemplary of that because I do the exact same thing all the time. 
one thing that I found really interesting, Jesse, I, I had the pleasure of watching the the video that you did on autistic characters in Star Trek, which was very well done, and people should definitely check it out. Oh, thank you. One thing that struck me is in the comments how many people who are saying, you know, I haven't been diagnosed with autistic, but so much of this applies to me. I wonder if I'm on the spectrum. Like, it was like comment after comment of people who are like, maybe I'm not technically on the spectrum or I definitely don't have a diagnosis, but I'm still like feeling represented by these characters and by these, these like phenomenons that you're describing that are related to autism. Yeah, I mean, it's it was super. I mean, that was one of the coolest things about doing that video is just like seeing like that's one of my most popular videos and I did not expect it. It's great stuff. And that's how we knew we had to have you on this episode. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, but it was just so cool to just see like how many people are drawn to kind of segue into the topic, I guess it would be like how many people are find themselves in Star Trek and are drawn to Star Trek because of this specific representation that they see, see sort of autistic coding in a lot of the characters in the franchise. And it was just it was just really, really cool to just see that community that's not really talked about sort of come out of the woodwork a little bit with the, in the comment section of that video. So I was really surprised and honored by that. And I love that we're, that I'm now about to segue from us talking about emotional response to the least emotional presenting people with the Vulcans. Spock is the big character, or at least one of them that we think about when we talk about this sort of relationship to what we have considered the stereotypical idea of autism and the characters in Star Trek. And we do see a lot of autistic or autistic-coded characters kind of based off of him. And sort of this Vulcan idea of logic before emotion, because a lot of us have issues with either expressing emotion or feeling empathy or portraying it the way that a lot of other people expect us to. But let's talk Vulcans. Let's talk Vulcans and autism. Most importantly, let's talk Spock, because that's what y'all came here for. <laughs> The fact that Spock has become a code word in other non-Star Trek pop culture properties to point out if there's a character who seems autistic coded or who maybe even is canonically autistic, people will call that character Spock at least once. It's inevitable. It's true. It's become such a pop culture permeation that shows up so much. Yeah. And what what I find interesting, I mean, the, the interesting sort of distinguisher between Spock and other Vulcans, quote unquote, other Vulcans, is like the acknowledgement that while he is very cold, aloof and logical based, which is sort of the stereotype of autistic people and autistic mm -hmm. coding, there's an acknowledgement with his character that like there is emotion under the surface that is actually there. Which can be its own problematic trope, sort of like being like, mm -hmm. oh, there's a normal person, quote unquote, normal there underneath the surface. But it's also sort of kind of nice to, to just sort of see a character sort of taken as like, oh, there is someone who is like profoundly emotional underneath the surface. So there's both good and bad in that sort of like understanding of his character. Yeah. Or that their emotions there, they're just not expressed the same way you would mm -hmm. expect to see with most other people. Yeah. It, it still does kind of warm my heart, though, that we've got this figure who is like that, who is one of the main characters on this incredibly influential show. That's just kind of nice to think of every now and then. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, one of my, one of the moments, I think I called it out in my, my video on Star Trek, but it's a really sort of, I think it's a really great way to understand how, how the stigma against autistic people gets perpetuated in that they're cold and aloof is there's a scene in Court Martial, I believe is the name of the episode, where Kirk's on trial. Mm -hmm. 
And Spock is sort of like looking at it logically and not understanding. And McCoy comes in and starts berating Spock, saying like, oh, how can you forget your friend? You're just sitting here playing chess, playing a game against the computer. And Spock says, well, look, I'm, I'm trying to uh, test the computer right now in order to see if uh, the computer got something wrong in terms of what it's, the evidence is showing against Kirk. And McCoy sort of realizes like, oh, this is him actually like doing something to help Kirk and sort of not realizing that this was his way of showing care and wanting to do something to help his friend in his own unique way. So I, I like that sort of like McCoy's prejudice against Spock gets proven wrong in that moment, which is sort of like what happens with a lot of stigma towards autistic people where they sort of see where people will come in and be like, oh, you're 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 being cold and aloof when really just autistic people will often just portray their caring in in ways that are not seen as quote unquote normal by the larger community. Yeah, you see something similar to that in Galileo 7, where like Spock is fully just trying to get to the core of like what what will help these people? Like what is the most immediately helpful and useful thing that I can do as a in a command position to get as many people off this planet's surface and alive at the same time. And like, yeah, he seems cold when he says, you know, it's like, we can't bury this dead crew member. Uh, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I've always watched that episode and been like, I don't get what everyone's deal is. Spock is right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> he, it's, it's not a great decision to have to make, but between, you know, he, it's the right one to me, but you know, again, he's just being, pleasant or being kind of soft, I guess, is not his priority in that moment, because that's not what's important to him. That's not how he thinks he can care for his crew the best. And for some of us, that's not our strong point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. His crew, his, yeah, it, 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 his crew actually thinks that he doesn't care at all. And he's in fact, just sort of like only caring in his own way. No, and I, that's actually a great point because one of the things I love about that episode that I feel like I've mentioned before and other things, but I just think it's so cool is like he is called out for being unempathetic, but actually he's the most empathetic person there because there's even a scene where he is, he talks about wanting to try and preserve the lives of the aliens that are attacking them. Mm -hmm. Like he is so empathetic in that moment that he's trying to care about both his crew and the people that are ostensibly killing them, even though he's not necessarily displaying it in a sort of like, Oh, let me let me like go and like care you care for you and, and display it and like the gestures that are more people are more accustomed to, but he is showing the most empathy out of all of them, to be honest. And I have to say, McCoy, I like McCoy as a character. <laughs> but we are gonna get into this, absolutely. <laughs> he frustrates me a lot. He's so frustrating. Yeah. The way he behaves towards Spock and the way he talks to and about Spock, it's very much Spock can't win. A lot of times yeah. where Spock is either too cold or Spock's not thinking about the right thing at the right time, or he cares too much in one instance or not enough in another. Like, I think it's, is it the Tholian web? I think where Spock's like, no, I don't care if we're supposed to, you know, flee from danger. I'm not abandoning Kirk. And McCoy yells at him for that. But then you see in things like the Galileo seven where McCoy's like, Oh, Spock, you're too, you know, cold. You need to think more about your crew. And I, I, I just feel like Spock can't win when it comes to McCoy. So Damn you, McCoy. Uh, <laughs> just want them to have that blow up on the bridge in front of everyone of, there's just no pleasing you, is there, Doctor? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think something that kind of comes at play with that dynamic, too, is that Spock is very much a character who says exactly what he means, and McCoy isn't. Yeah. And McCoy is one of those characters where you have to look at what he's doing and not what he's saying. 
because he he like is performatively gruff and pretends like he doesn't care all the time. So like I feel like that would cause a lot of communication problems between them just on that and like not even getting yeah. into the stressful situations that they find themselves into all the time. That's a really good point. I think McCoy probably doesn't I think he has to remind himself or he forgets that Spock is not performative the same way that McCoy is. I think from McCoy's perspective, he's just looking at life through his own eyes, which everybody does that. And I think he genuinely forgets at times, like the Spock that you see in front of you is exactly what's like, that's what's there. It's not Spock performing Spockness <laughs> the way McCoy performs the McCoy country doctor thing. Yeah. Uh, that, that's one thing I wanted to bring up. You know that McCoy absolutely thinks of himself as a completely straightforward, to the point guy. But at the same time, he has this level of performance he does and is kind of ignoring there. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. when you, you know when McCoy is really like lo- like showing his love is when he's yelling at you. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, because he cares. Oh yeah, exactly. One of my favorite McCoy moments is "Shut up, Spock. We're saving you." You know. Where he's basically like, no, I love you. You're my bro. I'm going to come save you and your dumb ass. But like the way that that comes out is him yelling at Spock. Him angrily regrowing a random woman's kidney and some stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. This is exactly my point. He's one of those characters and that you can't take his tone at face value. You have to see what is he actually doing. And those characters can be incredibly hard to read if you are a literal person who thinks that, like, what you're saying is the same thing as what you're meaning. So how do we think this changes up uh, between the different versions of Spock we've seen throughout the Star Trek franchise? Like, we've got Kelvin Spock, we've got original OG Leonard Nimoy Spock, we have Disco Spock now. Do we think that changes very much, or do we think that's one of the main consistencies? I think the one that like interests me the most is Disco Spock in the showing that like he has those scenes early on in season two of Discovery, where he is basically like displaying motion much more volatively. Like he has that sort of like knocking over the chest set. Mm-hmm. But even that kind of to a degree, the way that Ethan Peck performs it, I think is so nuanced in the sense that like even that kind of feels performative and perfunctory that he's like doing it in order to sort of like try to portray this inner emotion and turmoil that's going on inside of him. But it's not necessarily something that he wants to do. Like I watched that scene of him knocking over the chest set and, and maybe I'm projecting my own self onto it, but there's many moments in that where like I will feel anger or upset or frustration and i don't really know how to display it so i'll do like sort of an over-the-top gesture of like knocking over something or especially when i was younger i would Mm -hmm. i would do sort of those things just to be like this is how i display this right this is this is how i do this yeah Yeah. that's really interesting it's always strange when you're going through like an intense emotional thing and you have to explain to someone you're not seeing how upset this is making me right now and i need Mm -hmm. you to acknowledge that this is really really upsetting me yeah it's the same thing. It's why many people like when people see people who are, you know, autistic sort of display emotions, it's it's generally really heightened just because we, at least for me, is like we don't know how to display that properly. So like it may the emotion that we're feeling may not be equivalent to the way we display the emotion because we don't necessarily know how to equate one to the other and match one to the other in, in the exactly the same ways. And you can be like me where you just come off as being super manic to people because mm-hmm. you go from kind of cold and sarcastic to just, 
I'm so excited. Yeah, I don't have a lot of middle. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Which kind of neither does Spock. Think about like in Amok time, the, the one time we see a non-sex plant induced Spock yeah. smile. Although he ha- does have some like, I guess, Ponfar hormones going around going on. But still, like he you actually see him smile yeah. huge. And it's jarring and shocking but it's also really cool yeah (laughs) he's just so happy to see kirk's okay yeah but just that like on a different character that would just be a smile like it's a big smile but it's not like a bizarre smile yeah but for spock it is a bizarre smile Mm -hmm. it's bizarre but it's very meaningful in that this is something spock is isn't containing or will try to but can't hold on to for a second there and it's very sweet yeah Kind of going back to what you're talking about, Jesse, on like, you know, your inner emotions not showing. I'm thinking of another Vulcan, Tuvok, who has Mm. a really great line where he's like, do not mistake composure for ease. Ooh, yeah. And that's what that makes me think of is like, don't don't mistake the fact that I'm calm right now for like the like, I'm not comfortable. I'm just like outwardly calm. Yeah, I think a lot of autistic people have learned that if if they sh- let themselves show their discomfort, it can come across as unpleasantly jarring for other people around them or it can be downright dangerous depending on who they are and where they are and if they appear to be, you know, someone might think, "Oh, they're being violent," but they're not. They're just, you know, having a, a meltdown or something. Yeah. But you have to learn to not just do that at any any old time, any old place. Or in front of random people. Yeah. Kind of plays into something that I think of when all people are showing lots of emotion is there's always the risk of like upsetting the person that you're showing emotion to. And then you're put in the uncomfortable situation of like apologizing for and comforting the other person because you had emotions. Oh my gosh. Yes. I never know how to fully explain to neurotypical people that with a lot of expressing emotion and interacting there's a heavy level of for me for it to be natural a level of monkey see monkey do in that I'm having to go with what I'm working sometimes against what feels natural for me but I'm kind of flying without the right radar of someone trying to do a natural social interaction so I've been told that sometimes when I'm trying to be genuine, they're like, well, that just didn't seem very real to me. It's like, yes, because I don't have reactions the same way as you. I'm, I'm doing my best here. If we can actually use that as a segue into our next character, someone who does a lot of stuff with trying to learn unlearnable behavior, we have Data, who's kind of the follow-up character to Spock, really. Someone who doesn't understand human emotion and is trying to constantly copy what he sees around him and trying to learn emotion basically yeah i i i think it's so fascinating whenever i watch like i in fact what was the episode i watched last night it was eye of the beholder which isn't a great episode but there's a wonderful little scene in that episode where jordy they're talking about the one character the guest character of the week who committed suicide mm-hmm. and data admits that like oh i i felt something very similar and jordy crosses his arms in that moment and data does the same in that same moment he just crosses yeah. his arms too to match jordy And it's just such a like, oh, he's, you can tell that he's mimicking the body movements because he thinks that that's how you sort of have this type of conversation because he doesn't really know how to talk about suicide and what it feels like to have those types of feelings and emotions, even, even if that's not how he would talk about his own sort of feelings and dealing with suicidal thoughts. 
so he's sort of like trying to talk about such uh, something that is a very hard issue for other people and not necessarily having the same emotional weight that other people would have about something so hard to talk about. And so trying to mimic what someone else is doing in that moment in order to try to come across as giving the same weight and compassion to something that's really difficult to talk about. I think it was like a very subtle choice by Brent Spiner to to do that, to sort of be like, all right, I'm going to mimic this other person because I don't know the right sensitivity to have in this sort of conversation about suicide. Yeah, that's something I think. I think they do. Number one, Data's my boy. Like, (laughs) yeah, growing up, growing up watching TNG as a little kid, like, I mean, my parents like literally used Data as as a teaching tool for me as a child. They were like, remember when Data did this? Okay, here's why you should or should not do that. This is why the captain was surprised. I was watching Hero Worship a couple of days ago, which is the episode where the little boy decides he's going to be an android because he doesn't want to deal with the grief of losing his mother. Data is trying to figure out, you know, how best to help this boy. And at one point, they're in engineering, they're doing uh, data and and Jordy are doing work. And he just like, casually asks Jordy, hey, did you ever experience severe trauma as a child? (laughs) You know, just the stuff you you go into without a lead. Yeah. And it's it's not an appropriate topic of conversation. But it's a complete to me a very understandable. He's basically googling this stuff. And I get that. Mm-hmm. And to, to Jordy's credit and to the, to the credit of the whole show, the fact that, you know, maybe with the exception of early Pulaski, the only time people are kind of bothered or put off by data, it's some random guest of the week and they're wrong. Yeah. To, to, to Jordy's credit, he just doesn't really think twice. He, he thinks about his answer and he answers data, but he doesn't say he's bothered. By the question, he doesn't try to correct like data. You shouldn't ask people that. Yeah, he understands why data is asking that question and just doesn't take it personally. Although he would have totally been within his rights to not answer the question if he didn't want feel comfortable with it. But the fact that data just like casually it, it, at work <laughs> as asks that question is kind of funny to me hey jordy did you ever see someone die in front of you as a kid <laughs> yeah that's a, that is that is yeah i mean it's like okay hey hey jordy did you ever witness a mass catastrophe <laughs> <laughs> well that's the thing jordy's like yeah i nearly died in a house fire when i was five <laughs> damn dude <laughs> now i gotta get back to work with that on my mind <laughs> yeah, i'll just be thinking about this the rest of the day thanks data <laughs> But the thing, the thing too that I really always appreciate about all all of the characters towards Data is that they always treat his sense of discovery and his sort of explaining himself as, for lack of a better word, as human. They take it as as sort of like, oh, this is who he is. They never go like, oh, well, he's the droid, so we can just sort of like discount it or like take it with less weight or seriousness. I go back to like the eye of the beholder moment that I just really really love because it's so recently in my brain that like. Data just quick mentions like, yeah, I had very similar. He's like, I didn't, I don't understand why someone would want to kill themselves. And then Jordy explains why that might have happened. Like, oh, some, he might've felt something was wrong. And Data's like, oh yeah, I, I had similar thoughts. And Jordy immediately, instead of just being like, oh yeah, that's interesting, whatever. And just sort of like discounting his, his things. It's like, oh, that's just something, a, you know, an Android would say. Mm-hmm. He turns and he stops what he's doing. And he turns and looks at Data and says, oh, really? And he just gives the weight and seriousness to that to that revelation from data, even if data himself doesn't give that weight to it. And I just, I, and that, that continually happens throughout the show, like Picard and, and all these other characters will constantly, like when data makes mention of these things that have 
that for other people would be much more profound than than it would necessarily be for data. They treat it with the weight that it that it deserves, even if data himself may not understand it. Yeah. Data is the one who always tells other people that he doesn't have emotion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other people don't tell Data that he doesn't have emotion. Except for Pulaski yeah. and she's being a jerk. Pulaski, what is your deal? God. But Data's always the one who's like excusing himself as, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I can't experience fear. Or I can't, you know, sorry, Guinan, I can't tell you if this drink tastes good or not, but I can tell you that the fructose content is high. <laughs> you know, he's, he's always <laughs> discounting himself. I also, I am firmly of the camp that data absolutely does have emotions. He may not have emotions the same way that an organic being would, but I mean, you know, he's got that line. I've grown my neural pathways have grown Aww. accustomed to your input. I'm like, that is so meaningful. It's so sweet. Yeah, it sounds kind of funny, but I mean, he totally has emotions. And I think the fact that once he gets his emotion chip, which I have like a laundry list of problems with that, but anyway, the fact that he he really becomes a different character mm-hmm. once he gets the emotion chip, but it doesn't feel like the, to me, the line is not emotionless and emotion full. It's just like different. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like I, I, what I'm saying is data has emotions. Yeah. Pre emotion chip period. Let's talk about that emotion chip for a minute though, because I know someone put it down in the notes wanting to talk about that as a metaphor for the quote unquote cure for autism. Let's talk about that and how it's just kind of, oh, after seasons of data learning and slowly making progress on emotion, then there's suddenly like, oh, there's an on-off switch? What? How bizarre that is of an idea. Yeah, I, I doubt that they intentionally had that as a, like, as a deliberate metaphor. Yeah. But realistically, I think they probably were just like, what else can we do with this character after seven seasons? <laughs> we need Brett to be funny for this movie. What do we do? Yeah, and like, number... <sighs> The fact that when we do see Brent emote, he's usually either lore or he's data being like t- taken out his body taken over mm-hmm. by a, you know, yeah. crazy old scientist or whatever. So it's number one, it's already, I'm kind of already uncomfortable seeing a data looking character emote because usually it's a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> that usually means something's gone horribly wrong. Yeah. So it's already kind of weird to me, but I've... <sighs> I think the fact that after generations started like starting with first contact and on the fact that they really pulled back on how emotional data was mm-hmm. shows that I, I think they recognize that sh- like taking autism entirely out of the conversation, just from a purely a character perspective, they kind of like they changed the core fundamental like thing that made data. Yes. data. Yes. And then they were like, Oh crap. Well, that, Oh, people you know. didn't like this. What? <laughs> yeah. Like maybe we should, change that <laughs> yeah. change it back as much as we can and it perpetuates this idea that there's like a quote-unquote normal person yes. underneath mm-hmm. un- underneath all of this stuff that yeah. that is is a constant thing that you see with with autism it's like oh if you could just cure autism or, or reveals instead of just taking the person as who they are yeah. in the totality of who they are yeah is is really problematic i will say i do i do have two not defenses of the um motion chip but two sort of think moments with the um motion chip that i like Overall, I think it's a really bad idea, but there's two moments that are like, one is in Generations where he gets overwhelmed by his new emotions, like he feels yeah. fear. Yeah. And I actually really, really like that moment because it's it talks about like when autistic people do feel sort of overwhelmed by an emotion, they sometimes get paralyzed by by that yeah, and and can't really react in, in, in any way because they're just so overwhelmed by it. So I thought that that, that scene was 
I think portrayed like that scene is very horrific and I think is, is sometimes accurately represents what that feels like. So I actually kind of really appreciate that scene. And then the other one too, sort of as a side trip is I actually really like where the emotion ship first shows up way, way, way back in TNG yeah. <laughs> uh, with lore and data because lore wants the emotion ship because he's seen as less than data by, yeah. by his creator. And that sort of goes to this idea of like, Oh, well, you know, autistic people, because Lore is kind of similar in that way. He just doesn't portray the quote-unquote good version of autistic traits that his creator would want and sort of the devaluation by parents and caregivers of autistic people for the for certain specific autistic traits. And what is there to say really about this character when we're talking about this character and this specific set of traits and there is a good version that is working with everyone and that is like inhumanly patient and then there is a what what is seen as a bad one that's you know nasty and rude and bitchy to everyone i feel like there there's something further to dig into there yeah i mean data is not he's not a problem child yeah, he is, yeah. he would be the good kid in the classroom yeah who gets his homework done and you know maybe has to sit like at a different table because maybe he's going to pepper the other kids with you know mm-hmm. naive gentle questions yeah but he's not going to hit the kid next to him. As opposed to the kid who, like, <laughs> intensely wants and needs answers and doesn't behave in the way that the teacher feels like they can control. Right. Yeah. There's definitely some further <laughs> analogy to be dug into there. But if we could, moving forward, what do we think about the fact that Data, while presenting as an adult and while, you know, thinking mostly as an adult, is treated as being very childlike, which is something that... I don't know about you guys' experience, but I've had a lot of experience with people who, after finding out that I am on the autism spectrum, will kind of infantilize me and talk down to me a little bit. And that that's just a general sort of way that we see people approaching talking to autistic people in terms of, you know, kind of childing them. Yeah, I think Data's wonder and sort of awe at at the things around him, even really mundane things, Mm. I think that... I think it's really unfortunate that just in general, as a society, we see that as something that should be left in childhood. Yeah. <laughs> like what's yeah. wrong with being awestruck by something mm-hmm. as an adult that nothing. Yeah. But I, because we apparently have decided that, you know, maybe internally you might be really awestruck by something, but you're not supposed to express it or express it as, as enthusiastically, I guess. Where's your veneer of cynicism? You're doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you're just like, you should be bored by this by now. Like, or it's just, it's just one of these. Like, why are you so excited by this? Like, I don't know, because it's neat. Hey, hey, you, stop, stop taking wonder in everyday life. <laughs> it's freaking us out. <laughs> What's wrong with that? But, but it, you know, like, it's okay to think about being an astronaut if you're a kid, but yeah. if you're an adult and you think about being an astronaut, unless you actually are an astronaut. Yeah. That's weird. So I think the fact that Data takes very open and unapologetic awe in things encourages that. It doesn't. De- he, I don't, he's not deliberately encouraging it, but I think it is sort of he codes his himself or gets coded as sort of childlike yeah. because of it. I think there's also an element of people are trying to be supportive or understanding, and it actually like walks the line or crosses the line into being condescending. So yeah. if you ask them, like, mm-hmm. okay, what is the, what was your intent in saying this or doing this? They're, they And they thought about it. They would say, well, I was just trying to 
show empathy and show that I support you. But then the way that you're perceiving it or the way that it's coming off is they don't think you're capable. And I think that that can be a really common misunderstanding that's really frustrating for a lot of people where it's like, no, actually what you're doing is you're othering me. Yeah. The best part is when people think you can't tell the difference between them being empathetic and them very clearly being condescending to you. Yeah, definitely. Also an experience I have had. But I'm not bitter. <laughs> I'm not bitter. No, I've definitely had the same. I've very had very similar experiences. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever had it happen where, and this is me going on a tangent here, but have you ever had it happen where someone realizes it, within a group of people either through you telling them or them figuring out that you are on the autism spectrum, so they decide you're the child of the group? Because I've had that happen also. Oh, gosh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I have this thing, since we're going on this tangent, yeah. I'm going to go with you. Follow me on this journey. <laughs> Walk the path. <laughs> <laughs> I attract, it tends to be happen at work, but I attract friends who are women who are about 10 years older than me and have young children. My gosh. And yeah. they definitely see me as kind of on par with their kids. Oh man. Not that they actually think I'm 12. Yeah. But but it's very much this like, oh, you need some help figuring out how to dress better. Hey there, slugger. Do you need a hand? It is a little bit like yeah. that. And it, they also tend they almost I'm 36. Mm. They almost always think I'm like a couple years out of college. Yeah. Which is weird. And I'm like, I'm 10 years, I'm generally 10 years younger than the, the women who do this. And I know they mean well. It's not, they don't cross the line into being actually rude, but it's like, I, I am getting these vibes and I'm aware of them and I know what you're doing. And it's, you know, it, I it's just odd. <laughs> I, it's unfortunate that as far as I know, there's no polite way to say, I see what you're doing here dial it back just <laughs> dial it the hell back yeah because honestly what would i be what would i really be be able to tell them like i take issue with how friendly you are like that's not a thing you can i mean <laughs> it doesn't it, there's no way to express it that doesn't actually just sort of make me look bad yeah exactly uh -huh. or make them feel bad and i don't want them to feel bad for liking me enough to be friends with me it's just, I don't know, there's like, it's like a flavor. It's just not right. Yeah. I, it's so interesting that you bring that up for, for two reasons. Because one, I have so experienced that and never actually <laughs> thought about it. But like, in almost every workplace that I'm in, I always end up being like the youngest person in the group, quote unquote, or the youngest seeming person in the group because of that dynamic that even even if it's unintentional. But it's also to bring it back to our conversation at hand, I think that there's there's like interesting shades of that dynamic in both two other um, autistically coded characters with both Tilly and Seven of Nine. Oh, excellent. Because they, they mm. do have like Seven of Nine is, is treated like a child by Captain Janeway. And same thing with Tilly with Burnham and really all of the crew. Now, they're probably a little bit more justified given the specific situations with both Tilly and Seven, but that dynamic is definitely present. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like Seven is definitely, she is the like, rebellious 15 year old that's that's where she fits yeah let's talk about seven then i appreciate the fact that jerry ryan the actress who plays seven has really kind of glommed onto this idea that autistic people see seven as a character they identify with i really appreciate that she's supported and leaned into that and especially considering the fact that we see seven as a character evolve we don't see her become quote-unquote fixed we see her 
learn and adapt, which I really appreciate. I, I, yeah, I agree. I adore listening to interviews with Jerry about her appearance in Star Trek Picard yeah. because she displays like that exact sort of feeling. Like she's, she said she was having so, such a hard time finding Seven of Nine's voice in the way that the dialogue was written for her in Picard. And the way that she said she eventually figured it out was that she's just like, oh, this is Seven portraying what she feels she needs to portray in this world. But it's, it's just sort of like a little bit of a performance on her part to it, this character's part, not on Jerry Ryan's part, mm-hmm. to sort of display her, her interactions with this world, which is exactly what we were talking about before of like sort of play acting what you think the, the emotions are in the moment, because that's what you other people expect of you in that in that scene. And I just I, I'm so glad that Jerry glommed onto that as a as a performance idea. Yeah, we've got this is this is Jerry as seven as how she thinks natural human interaction goes. Mm-hmm. She's great because it's like she's she's the same person. She's just learned how to say her lines more clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, going back to the dynamic we were talking about earlier, I think it's interesting that like Janeway takes on the quote unquote project of teaching seven to be more human. I mean, obviously, there's a sense of responsibility because there is sort of Janeway's, you know, it's, it's because of Janeway that Seven of Nine is there. But there is this interesting thing, sort of like matriarchal figure mm-hmm. coming in and, and trying to like teach someone how to to be more human and show them how to be more human in an interesting way. Definitely true. I do think it's interesting how Seven, she does not get the benefit of the... I don't know, I guess, support that Data does. Like, thinking about Seven's interactions with Bellana. Yeah. Bellana does not like Seven. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. You Not everyone has to like everyone. But it, there's, v- n- like, zero attempts at empathy towards Seven. And, I like, I get that Seven herself is very prickly, too. I mean, honestly, Bellana and Seven are really similar in a lot of ways. And that's mm-hmm. probably why they got on each other's nerves. Yeah. But, so I understand that. But there is very little like maybe except for the doctor and, and Naomi Wildman the fact that seven's like best friend is an eight-year-old girl yeah is sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. other than the doctor really people either are interested in working with seven because she's hot yeah that's a whole level of what yeah which I mean she is yeah, but I know but for still Theta <laughs> didn't have to be deal with being sexualized straight out the gate the way mm-hmm. seven did yeah and and Oh, I have issues with the one episode where Data is overtly sexualized. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that was like a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. So people either interact with Seven because she's hot or because she is, you know, a brainiac. Like she's useful as a, basically a walking diagnostic tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even then people like Bolana don't really want to have to work with her, but they just, you know, grin and bear it because Seven is good at her job. Yeah. Yeah. And like the prejudice that comes with uh, sort of having autistic people in in professional situations mm-hmm. in any situation, too. Yeah. The other thing with Seven that I find that I see myself so much in in her character that I think is kind of unique to her is social anxiety, but also kind of being an extrovert as well, because Seven puts off this veneer of being very isolationist and wants to sort of be away from everybody. But there's that wonderful episode one that I really, really like. There's some problems with the episode overall, but I think I really like the idea of like she's isolated and alone and that causes her intense anxiety to the point of like she has a breakdown at the end of that episode kind of coming out of like she's never used to being alone, having been in the collective for so long. And yet when she is in social situations, she's very like hesitant to go near people. 
And I feel that so much too, because I am an extrovert. Like I get a lot of energy from being around people and being social, but also being in social situations causes me intense anxiety because I always feel like I have to overthink what I have to do to be in those situations. Yeah. It is a very real and very uncomfortable phenomena. Mm-hmm. I do I do just so much like the fact that we get to see seven pre and post sort of growth. And one of the things I appreciate in contrast about a character like Tilly's arc is that we're watching her in the process of that sort of learning arc. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about her as a character in learning and adjust, adapting and becoming the person she wants to be. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I really like about Tilly, and this is going to sound backwards, is the fact that I don't actually see myself really in her much at all. And I like that because it means that Star Trek is exploring beyond the Spock and Data sort of version of an autistic character because it is a spectrum and yeah. autistic people are different from one another. It's almost like there isn't one universal mold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I know that a lot of viewers are saying that they see themselves in Tilly and maybe they didn't don't see themselves as strongly in Data or Spock or some of the other kind of previous characters. I think it's really, it's cool. It's, it's good to have broader representation. Especially in terms of broader representation through women characters, because yeah. we, we had such a stagnant idea of what needed to be a priority for women characters for such a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I also find it interesting that the dynamic of Burnham and Tilly in the first season of Discovery, because Burnham is supposedly Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's actually Tilly that's teaching her emotion. And I find yeah. that to be an interesting dynamic. And I find them interesting anyway, because we don't have very many female friendships that are explored on Star Trek. It's mostly male friendships that are explored on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So I found them to be cool to watch and an interesting dynamic that I hadn't quite seen before on Star Trek. Yeah, I appreciated that the moment of them sort of figuring each other out and and like yeah, I don't know if I really want to room with this person. I liked the fact that that moment was very short. Yeah. It got over it really quickly and it just sort of was like or we could just be friends. Cool, let's do that. Great. They're not going to try and play up this odd couple situation in a way that pits them against each other. Yeah. Exactly. It's not adversarial. It's like we're in this situation and oh, actually you're pretty cool and I'm pretty cool too. All right. We're all in this together. <laughs> I also love that they subtly reinforce that because I even see some people being like, Burnham still rooms with Tilly even after she's promoted to first officer or even or science officer or whatever point she's be- she becomes that. And I'm like, I love that. I love that they choose to be roommates still when clearly I'm, I'm sure Burnham could have requested her own solo quarters at that point. Uh, I think that's really, really cool that they just like being roommates. Yeah. There's is also a friendship based in grounding each other in a way, I think. And that's that's really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about like the power dynamics of sometimes one character being, you know, childlike or infantilized. In this case, Burnham is a mentor to Tilly, but they're still equals and they're still learning from each other. Their dynamic is balanced. They're definitely on equal footing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not a maternal vibe from Burnham at all. Yeah. It's it's very much, we are both professional women on this ship and I can help you with your dreams on becoming a part of command and 
you can push me into talking to the snack. (laughs) 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 My favorite Discovery episode is Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. And it's basically one of the huge reasons is because of the two relationships in that episode that get highlighted, which is Burnham and Tilly, and then also Burnham and Stamets who come to an understanding in that episode that they had not come to before. Yeah, and also we just get some great character moments in that episode. Yeah, to me that's the closest thing we get to a standalone episode in Discovery, and I miss them. It's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of nonstop action otherwise. So if you had a final character, let's go around the group. If you have a final character you want to address or talk about, who would that character be? And let's, let's start with, with you, Claire. I would like to maybe talk about Tam Elbrin really quickly. Yeah, uh, I, let's do it. He's the Betazoid who merges with Gomtu and goes goes off and lives with him in Tin Man. I don't know that I would say that Tam Elbrin is necessarily coded as autistic, but he's definitely neurodivergent and probably one of the few times that we see Star Trek talking about, you know, kind of neurological differences, I guess. Yeah. What I think is fascinating about him is actually his dynamic with Data and the fact that the way Tam's set up, he he basically is just like extremely telepathic. So he is bombarded by everybody's mind constantly. Mm-hmm. So it's very distracting. It's, you know, maybe maybe a good sort of metaphor for sensory issues. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But the one person that he can't actually get anything from is Data. Yeah. And Tam very easily could have written Data off as less than, I'll say human, yeah. or less than alive, but he doesn't at all. In fact, he sees Data as as his equal and as exciting and refreshingly different and in a way that is not fetishized, but is just like, he's just excited about it. And Data sort of does his Data thing and tries to downplay his own status as a living being and all this stuff. And Tam is like, no. I'm not having any of that. Like you paint and you, you know, you've set up your quarters to be special for you and sort of work for, for the way you work. And it's really amazing that you have this space for yourself and that you like live a whole complete life. And I'm kind of making it sound a little bit condescending and, but that's not at all how Tam Elbrin makes it sound. But I just think they have a really cool dynamic together and neither of them really like both of them seem to appreciate in the other things that other people find frustrating or sad or like not like neither of them see each other as deficient <laughs> or like a case to be pity yeah <laughs> uh, they see each other as just like different and complete and good i also just want to point out one thing really quickly T'Pol has a heightened sense of smell apparently i guess all vulcans do but we don't really hear about it until T'Pol. So there, sensory differences. Yes. The end. Uh, Jesse, do you, uh, do you have a character you'd like to touch on? Yeah, just uh, briefly. I think one of the one interesting one that kind of gets overlooked is Bashir. Ah. In in the idea of sort of the cure for autism and his sort of resentment of that. We could also talk about the augments too, but mm-hmm. the augments are much more explicitly meant to be sort of neurodivergent uh, representations. But there's the wonderful scene in the episode where we learn that Bashir is genetically enhanced. And how Bashir sort of feels that the person that he was was killed by his parents, that they never actually got to know who that Bashir was because they didn't appreciate him for him and went about trying to cure his quote unquote deficiencies. The way it sounds, to be very honest, uh, I mean, we can't really know for sure, 
But it sounds as if like the Bashir that existed before the genetic enhancements was autistic. And his parents found that too overwhelming to deal with and decided to try and cure him. Now, obviously, there's like problems with like the idea that there is a cure for autism in, yeah. in the Star Trek world. <laughs> so that that is itself problematic. But Bashir's reaction to it and resentment towards his parents for that, I think, is very, very understandable and very, very real. And I think that that's super interesting. So both I just find Bashir to be such an interesting discussion because there's a lot of problems with that portrayal, but also a lot of like interesting dynamics that I think Reed is very true as well. His uh, dynamic with his parents after that whole conversation also is very interesting when you compare it to the dynamic that at least I've encountered in families where someone didn't get an autism diagnosis until they were an adult mm -hmm. or were like denied treatment or consultation as a kid because their parents were just kind of in denial about it and how there is a really difficult level of resentment to let go of there. Yeah. What about you, Andy? Do you have anyone you'd like to touch on? Yeah, I'd like to just briefly bring up Barclay and yeah. we've we've <laughs> done a whole episode on Barclay. So if, if people want to hear us take a deeper dive into his character, we have one. Mm -hmm. But in general, I feel like he has become one of the characters people think of specifically when it comes to anxiety mm -hmm. and his anxiety to me is super relatable. He has a moment where he's describing his social anxiety, which is very much just mood. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, big Barclay mood. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, there are times where I have issues with his writing and his portrayal, but occasionally I, it's just like, Oh yeah, that's that. I have felt that I relate so hard to this and I relate so hard to that discomfort and that feeling of you actually are annoying everybody and they actually do don't like you and that like fear and how sometimes people, it, people will act like it's irrational, but it's not because yeah. if Picard can call yeah. someone broccoli, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also found his, especially his first episode, very interesting because he actually, the, that episode actually sets us up to root for him and against the main crew, which is, doesn't happen very often. Yeah. And it's fascinating that it's specifically Jordy, who we've seen be a really good friend yeah. to somebody like Data. Just like, he really craps the bed, honestly, with Barkley. Somebody just flipped his judgmental switch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, what the hell? He's unpleasant. And Guinan is absolutely right. She's like, if you thought nobody liked being around you, you probably, like, it would affect the way you acted. And it's true. Yeah, Jordy, you got to own this. Like, this, some of this is on you. Yeah. This is bad leadership. This yeah. is bad leadership all the way up to Picard which we really do not see very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> I've just got so many feelings about Barclay. I really do. I know. I do, too. We'll have to do a, a Barclay part two. <laughs> I know. The barclay inning. <laughs> Basically, all of our episodes, we end and we're like, okay, well, well, we didn't get to everything, so I guess we'll have to have a part two. <laughs> yeah. I have one that I want to bring up really quickly, and that is Flux, for two very specific reasons. One is just because someone has learned... To make you comfortable with them doesn't mean that they are always comfortable with you. It's, it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And just because someone is smiling doesn't mean they are completely comfortable and 
don't mistake being genial for being completely and totally a thousand percent cool with the situation that you are in. Mm -hmm. And also because I find that neurotypical people get so weird when you call them out on weird neurotypical stuff. <laughs> the way the way Phlox does with you humans are so weird. <laughs> They haven't thought about it, and we have we have only thought about it. And like, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So someone asks how you're doing, and you just say fine, no matter what, even if you're having a completely crap day. That's so weird, dude. Yeah. That's so passive aggressive. <laughs> it's like if you don't if you don't care, then you also shouldn't care if I don't ask how you're doing. But you care a lot yeah. if I don't ask yeah. how you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you don't actually want to tell me, and I'm not supposed to actually want to know. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> Look at these weirdos. <laughs> but yeah, that that's a big part of my experience there too. Well, that is a I I think that gives that's about all the time we have for this week. Again, we had many more characters we'd like to touch on. We didn't intentionally leave them off the list. Oh no, we did. We specifically got together all all four of us and we thought that person in our audience we really want to make that person specifically mad so we're going to ignore their favorite character you're right it was a conspiracy all <laughs> along just to annoy you specifically <laughs> but but that's the time we've got for the time being as a twer. <laughs> so, Jesse, where can people hear more from you on the internet? Well, if you want to hear more from me, which heaven knows why you would, <laughs> but if you do, uh, I have a uh, YouTube channel called, like I said earlier, Jesse Gender. You can find that by searching on the YouTubes. And then I also have my own podcast where I'm doing a Farscape rewatch with Council of Geeks, who is another LGBTQ YouTuber. And I've never seen Farscape before, so it's me watching it for the very first time in that podcast called What the Frell. So, and you can also find me on all the social medias at Jesse Gender. And Claire, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Isolinear Chick. That's C H I C K, not C H I P. And that's it. And what about you, Andy? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter at First Time Trek. And I'm Grace, and you can find me on Twitter at Bonecrusher Jank or at the party in the corner pretending to be interested in a potted plant <laughs> <laughs> or, or the dog or the cat or, you know, just rifling through the piles of coats looking for loose change <laughs> let's be real the bus ain't gonna pay for itself <laughs> to learn more about our show or to contact us visit women at warp.com or find us on facebook twitter or instagram at women at warp you can also email us at crew at women at warp.com and for more from roddenberry podcasts visit podcast.roddenberry.com thanks so much for joining us This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.